broadcasting from Washington, D.C., this is Insider's Guide to Energy. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sast, and with me is co-host Jeff McCauley. This week, we're going to talk direct air capture, Jeff. Um, what did you think about this episode? Chris, we've had some recent conversation about carbon capture and, and sequestration, carbon credits, I think it's really interesting to dive into direct air capture and how it fits within this ecosystem of carbon management. I thought what was interesting isn't so much the direct air capture, because that seems really cool. It was the positioning of where this fits, what the cost points could be. We know that this is reliant on government subsidies, but having a clearer guide to walk through how those government subsidies interact with different forms of direct air capture was really fascinating Adam Goff is the SVP of strategy at Eight Rivers Capital. Before Eight Rivers, Adam was the chief of staff at ClearPath, a foundation that advances dispatchable clean energy. And it was at ClearPath where he worked on the early development of 45Q carbon tax incentives. So he's a great person to help guide us through the past, present, and potential future of direct air capture. Adam, tell us more about Eight Rivers and what you do. Sure. So Eight Rivers, we've been around 15 years now, and we invent and commercialize carbon capture technologies. So direct air capture is actually the newest part of our portfolio. We've got over a decade experience first in power uh, with the the alum cycle, making power from uh, fossil fuels with full carbon capture using a uh, CO2-driven cycle, and then with hydrogen with something called 8RH2. Uh, And taking a lot of that expertise and knowledge on oxy combustion, which is burning in pure oxygen, and using CO2 as a working fluid, so using CO2, carbon dioxide, to help move heat around the system and manipulating those properties, we invented something in 2019 that pulls CO2 directly from the air by using calcium. The way I like to think about this is we're leveraging the oldest building material known to man. Right? We've been making coliseums and other things out of calcium for a very long time. This is how the Romans you know, uh, made those beautiful cities and roads. We accelerate that process by which calcium absorbs CO2 and becomes calcium carbonate. Uh, By structuring it into a really high surface area solid sorbent, we can then have basically a row of fans um, that blows very uh, immense volumes of air over that sorbent, absorbing that CO2. And then we can recycle it back into a kiln that pops the CO2 off at high temperatures and we store it underground. So the result of all that work is CO2 goes from the air It goes into our system, and then it comes out in a pipeline that we can inject about a mile underground for permanent storage. And so how many, it seems like there's multiple steps in the process. So compound question, what are the most important figures of merit in that process? And then how much of that are you at Eight Rivers doing, the absorbing, the regeneration, but then is it also the shipping and injection, or is that handed off to others in the supply chain? As we think of the boundary limit of our project, um, we will buy all the fuels and power. So we aren't, you know, we're going to need power. We're going to need some kind of fuel like natural gas. um, And we're going to need someone to store the CO2, need someone to supply us with water. We need someone to supply us with calcium. All of those are kind of outside of our boundary limit, right? So we're buying those, but that's a key part of the ecosystem. The things that we do um, is going to be both the air contactor, the thing that absorbs the CO2 from the air, and the kiln. So the way of uh, calcining, heating up that calcium carbonate to about 1,000 degrees Celsius, uh, capturing the CO2 from that and compressing it. 
Um, all of this we'll do with partners. When I say we do it, you know, we invent a process, but a lot of the work is you're pulling in a dozen plus companies with 100 years of experience in each of these little subsystems and pulling that together into what is a process and a financeable plant. This is really exciting from the perspective, it's almost too good to be true. You know, if, if I can take carbon out of the air, that, that seems like a wild dream. Now, I also know, I think you guys were an XPRIZE winner in, in the past for this technology. DOE is putting money behind the projects you're working on. So folks are believing in this, but the naysayers have that I've seen say, hey, this is really expensive. You just talked about water, energy, all these inputs. Is this commercially viable yet or is this still kind of a government science experiment saying hey let's let's test this and get this going so there's a lot of questions there chris i think it is totally right that this should be the most expensive way to remove co2 it is more expensive than anything else we do right it's definitely a better idea to not emit co2 right it's a better idea to use better light bulbs it's a better idea to capture that co2 from the power plant before it disperses in the atmosphere and gets so hard to find and concentrate. So no disagreement there. I think the purpose and the service that Director of Capture provides is there are some sectors where you don't really have other options, right? You might have a remote steel plant in a place you need steel, or I mean, the, the my favorite here is airplanes, right? It is really expensive to find a way to do particularly over ocean transport. Domestic flights, I think we have a lot more options, but if you're talking about flying from New York to London or from San Francisco to Japan, it's really expensive. And what direct air capture does, is it's a cost ceiling. It's if we can do direct air capture at $250, say, per ton of CO2 removed, if your solution to air travel is more expensive than that, you should buy this instead, right? And if it's less expensive, great. You should use that biofuel and uh, use your you know, new electric plane or, or whatever that solution might be. So basically, this is our most expensive abatement option because anything that's more expensive, you shouldn't do it anymore. You should do this. And so from our perspective, it's going to be a small percentage of the decarbonization solution. We're talking, let's say we get you know 2% market share of 50 billion tons of CO2 that we're emitting. That's a billion tons a year. So even if you're saying, yes, this is a, you know, a couple percentage points of the total decarbonization problem, from a business perspective for us, A, that's a, a big deal. We need to actually reduce all those 50 billion tons of CO2. So we want to work on that problem. And it's a big enough opportunity that there's going to be mo space for multiple technologies in that space to say, hey, if you want to remove a billion tons a year, if that costs you $100 per ton, that's $100 billion a year. Okay, that's a big enough market opportunity where we really should be investing in multiple solutions and we can actually raise capital, invest our own capital to do the expensive and you know multi-year process of delivering you know physical infrastructure with new technology. I really like that framing of DAC as a last resort and a cost ceiling. Yes, do all those other things, but this is the most expensive, the last resort and something that was, is important to have in the in the portfolio. Not that it is permission to keep emitting because it's going to be expensive. So you said 250 bucks a ton. Is that the target? I mean, I'm assuming today, you know, it's still in the early technology development stage, so if you were to have an estimate of where it, where it is. It's probably in the thousand, two thousand bucks. Where are you today, and what's the target? I think publicly the industry's target is a hundred dollars per ton. I think if we get close to a hundred dollars per ton, I'll be happy. One of those targets is like green hydrogen is targeting a dollar per kilogram, and it's kind of like you're always aiming for it. 
also with inflation, it's like, oh, was that a was that a hundred dollars a ton in twenty eighteen? That target, or is it <laughs> like compound interest really changes changes the goalpost there? So that's the target. I think where we are today, uh, I think a lot of the promising promising solutions are all sub a thousand dollars, and they're all over two hundred. And so it's really a range. I think it's hard to compare apples to apples because they're all at different sizes, right? So where we are. The first commercial plant we build, we're looking at in that 50,000 to 100,000 tons a year of CO2 range, which on the one hand is a lot. On the other hand, is way, way too small. Like our, our com- like the unit size we want to be building out is about a million tons a year. But we have to go through right stage de-risking where we go from 1,000 tons to 100,000 tons. You have really fast declines till you get to about a million tons, right, just from scale, right? It's much cheaper to build one big kiln than to build one small kiln. And so that's where you get the initial declines. And then after that, it's how fast you can improve your technology and how fast you can drive risk out of the system and, you know, make it more of a, you know, rinse and repeat solution, which I think is an exciting thing about DAC and an advantage it has over retrofitting a power plant is you should really be able to rinse and repeat it, right? You can put it in the same place, pull the same air. You shouldn't have to customize it to build multiple plants in the same location. You've mentioned a bit about the process of, of what you do, and, and it seems you know, kind of intuitive. You, you you blow fan across some material, it absorbs. You do something with the material to have it transform, and then you store it. And, and you talk about a kiln. What kind of energy, it's an energy podcast, does it take to do this? Calcination is typically thermal, right? So we are looking at thermal calcination in a high oxygen environment with carbon capture. So if you're burning a kiln today, which there's thousands across the world in the paper industry and in the cement industry and in the lime industry, they're burning anything they can get their hands on. Tires, coal, wood chips, gas. I mean, kilns really, they kind of toss trash into these things to some degree. Um, we'll probably be burning gas, right? It's kind of the baseline fuel that you'd look at here. Makes it really easy to get to those high temperatures. And because we're burning in a pure oxygen environment, we can capture all that CO2. You could run a kiln on electricity. There are companies that are developing electric kilns. We are agnostic in terms of the fuel for the kiln. The thing we care about is it needs to be low emissions, and it needs to be 24-7, and it needs to be at a reasonable cost. So our view right now is the the best solution that hits those three pillars, that we can get reasonable cost uh, and low emissions 24-7, is um, a thermal fuel with carbon capture. Because believe it or not, 24-7 carbon-free power is pretty, as someone who's trying to produce it, there isn't surplus supply in the U.S. And it's difficult to get. And the electric kiln technology, you know, has, is more, is newer than thermal calcination. That, so that's where we're focused. We do need to capture the CO2 from that fuel, though, right? Because you're putting CO2 into the system that comes with the fuel. You have to capture it and store it along with the CO2 that you're capturing from the air. How much energy does it take is this gigajoules per ton? How much energy input does it take to get a ton of CO2 captured and, and sequestered? And then you could also do that on a CO2 balance basis. So if you're emitting CO2 from your natural gas, how many tons of CO2 do you emit per ton of CO2 that you're capturing? Knowing that if that's the upside down, you're always racing to catch up because you have to capture all of the CO2 that you're generating to capture the CO2, like there's, it seems like you could um, get out of balance fairly quickly there. Yeah, I think one of the things, so the energy use really matters because of the emissions associated, right? So the key thing is this is costing us 100 bucks per ton to capture CO2 from the air. We can't really be emitting any in the process. It, does, it really doesn't make 
any sense. And so you are going to have really upstream emissions is what's going to CO2 emissions from mining limestone, or if you're using gas, what kind of gas do you use? Or there is there any leakage in the pipeline? You have to account for every single thing all the way upstream, but it's going to end up being, you know, five or 10% where, okay, I captured 1.1 tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. What we call gross is the total capture. Maybe the amount of carbon removal I did is one ton. Right. So that kind of it's, it's that order of magnitude where you've got about 10 percent. The energy use, there's a lot of variables that will change it based on technology and also the specific conditions you assume of where you're doing it, the CO2 content of the air, et cetera, et cetera. But it's on the order of, you know, five to 10 gigajoules per ton of CO2 somewhere like in that range. And the th- a thing that I think that I don't think is widely agreed is I think CapEx is way more important than OpEx and energy here. If you want to get to $100 per ton, if you're at plant 20, energy is the driver, right? It's, it's that squeezing out the energy. But if we're talking about a solution that's a couple hundred bucks a ton, even if I'm at the high end and I'm 10 gigajoules per ton of CO2, you guys know how much a gigajoule is in the US right now. Like a gigajoule is four bucks. Like it's just really not a capex is that initial driver. When you're building a new technology, it's really expensive to build these large facilities and your initial cost of capital is high. Right, you're not at the solar cost of capital uh, yet, and so we are. We think long term driving energy out of the system, but I would love to see more innovation um, for other people's technologies. Really focused on the capex side of it, uh, and not as focused on the perfect energy efficient system. Now you start talking about the cost of building and operating these systems, and that leads to subsidies and government programs. What's going on in the government space to help these kind of programs, IRA and other type of projects or state level? The U.S. has had really great climate policy the last couple of years. I just I think it's really impressive to see what Congress has done. They set up multiple programs through multiple bills. They set up something called the Direct Air Capture Hub Program uh, through a bill a couple of years ago that bipartisan basis passed Congress um, that funds some of the initial, it funds about half the CapEx or half the design cost for a bunch of different hubs around direct air capture. So direct air capture doesn't really exist yet, right? This is a new industry. It's not, you can't, there's like one or two of these plants at any significant scale around the world. And so they're funding a lot of plants to be designed, to be conceptualized, a smaller number of plants to be built uh, in a bunch of different locations in the U.S., and that's on the order of a couple billion dollars total. So they're doing some of that early funding. We are a recipient, so we're thankful to the Department of Energy's leadership here. Um, we've got a, a project in Alabama where they're funding us to do the design work on our first commercial plant. And that's through uh, what's called the CDAC Hub. It's one of these acronyms that projects love to use acronyms. Um, and Alabama is really the perfect place for us to build not just the first pr- project, but also is a great future location for larger scale deployments. It's humid. We love humid. And a lot of dark technologies, that humidity really improves your kinetics. So that's a big boost. But the bigger deal here, and what I think is really driving all of the direct air capture industry, really to focus on the U.S., is both that we have CO2 infrastructure, which is we've got thousands of miles of CO2 pipelines, we've got great geological maps, and we've got lots of developers doing the work to store the CO2 underground, which it's easy to take for granted, but other countries just don't have it, or they're you know a decade behind us. And then maybe most importantly here is there's a large tax credit uh, for pulling CO2 from the air that buys down a lot of the cost. Uh, this is how the U.S. bought down the cost of solar and wind. We've had tax credits for solar and wind for over around 30 years now, called with more acronyms here, the ITC and the PTC are those acronyms uh, for those who aren't familiar with the lingo. In carbon capture, we have 45Q. Don't 
you know, you don't want to know where all, all these acronyms come from, but 45Q will pay you $180 per ton of CO2 from the air. And so what that does, that's a signal that, hey, you have an initial way to get that cost down from expense, too expensive to buy all the way down to expensive, but reasonable for some early buyers to purchase. So your first plants are going to be the most expensive. We have this tax credit that lasts for 12 years that will help pay down some of the costs of these first facilities. Thing about that, I guess the one thing that I'd read in some of the government documents is kind of the monitoring, the reporting and verification, right? So if I'm going to pay you X and you're going to go sequester it somewhere, what happens? You've now captured it. You've done what you've done. You, you've put it in one of these carbon storage. How do, how do you validate that it's permanently gone? We've got two stages of that MRV for us. And I think MRV is a big deal. Monitoring, report, reporting, verification is a big deal on carbon removal. I will say it's the easiest for a direct air capture. So I think one of the reasons why it's a huge deal is for a lot of these more nature-based solutions, which are fantastic, monitoring, you know, enhanced rock weathering, as an example, or soil carbon is a technically complicated challenge. It's both extremely important and also it's just hard. The nice thing with direct air capture is it's not hard. Inside of the plant itself, we have to measure how much CO2 is in the air when it blew into your fans and how much CO2 is in the air when it leaves. And we can validate that against how much CO2 is coming into the pipeline, right? And how much of that is from your fuel and how much of that is from the air. So that's kind of stage one. That's how much CO2 removed. Stage two is you inject it underground. How do you make sure it stays there? Um, and so EPA has a program where they have all sorts of different rules for how you monitor it over time, how you track where that CO2 is migrating underground. It does stabilize and in many cases actually becomes a rock. So it'll it'll mineralize in this porous sandstone over the over a hundred year-ish time frame. So not, not immediately. But we're going to have partners who do that. So we aren't subsurface people. Subsurface people, those are the geologists who spend all their time thinking in millions of years, time frames, you know, and a mile plus down. The U.S. has been monitoring this stuff for 40 plus years. For a lot of, for some of the processes in the oil industry, they've been injecting CO2 downhole for decades. The difference now is we're not injecting it for oil. Right. We're injecting the CO2. Nothing comes back up. We're injecting it in places where we know it can be safely stored. And so that CO2 storage partner of ours has a program with the EPA where they can monitor the pressure. They can monitor where the CO2 goes. They have different wells and different models. Uh, but I'm happily a little bit ignorant on the deep details of how you manage and monitor where that plume goes. And what's important that you just mentioned, especially for folks that are familiar with 45Q, a lot of the incentives there are actually for the CO2 to be injected for enhanced oil recovery in basically fossil fuel production. My understanding, what I think you're saying is the 180 bucks per ton for direct air capture does not require enhanced oil recovery. So you are doing permanent, so you're not just enabling further oil production and you're not required to to receive that 180 bucks in 45Q, correct? You're required not to, right? So the 180 ah. bucks is you are promising, no, nothing comes back up. You inject the CO2 and th that's it, right? So that 180 bucks in other parts, so there's different parts of the 45Q tax credit and there's always this bifurcation where the federal government always pays you more to not produce oil. So the, the pure sequestration always has a higher tax credit in the way they're designed. In direct air capture, that gap is massive. So if you were to do enhanced oil recovery, which we're not planning to do, um, you would get $130 per ton versus $180. That $50 per ton gap is frankly too big for anyone to want to do it. I think there's, that's, there's that driver. And I think the second driver is that we have customers, right? We have customers who are buying carbon removal. 
most of them don't want to be involved with enhanced recovery, right? If you're, you know, a big tech company or a big airline, and this is your, you know, most expensive, but highest quality, you know, sexiest, most interesting, futuristic way to, to reduce your CO2, people like the idea, and I think rightly so, of having this be pure storage and not part of the fossil fuel production chain. So where this is going, if we think about that, you know, you're at 800 bucks per ton, let's say today, you need to get it down to 100 to 200. One leg of that stool, one piece of the puzzle is 180 bucks a ton from 45Q. The next is subsidized infrastructure for the CapEx from the, the hubs. And the remaining piece is offtake. Who are the buyers of these tons, given that they're kind of a unique flavor? They're different from other uh, carbon removal tons. Yeah. In the near term, the buyers we are seeing are tech companies, financial parties, and airlines, right? And that's if you, the, pu- the public deals you've seen done involve the biggest tech companies, you know, the biggest airlines, the biggest banks. Um, so those are the early buyers. When I think of who the long term buyers are, when we're talking about tens to hundreds of millions of tons of CO2, you need someone who has tens to hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 to get rid of, who can afford to pay DAC prices. And has no better option. So that is, you end up with things like air travel. I think air travel is the perfect example here of the product can handle that price. Air, air tickets are expensive. They emit, you know, on the order of a billion tons a year. So it's big enough to scale to do this. And they don't really have great other options. I don't think it'll only be direct air capture. When we look at air travel, we think you're going to be able to get some biofuels in there. But there's, you know, there might be more trains that we can do. There might be electric planes for certain routes. But we think direct air capture is going to be part of that solution. So it's that kind of industry, right? It's not, it's not power plants. It's not your cars. It's not these things where we have better decarbonization solutions. It's those large hard to abate industries. I'm, I'm the, the master of asking the, the silly question, but I just don't know. So location, you're in Alabama. Uh, you're technical advising or working on a project in Alabama, from what I recall. Does location matter? Is it really significant if I'm close to the industry? I mean, air travel is kind of all over. Where do these facilities need to go? There's two ways to think about it. I think from the customer, customer is someone who's emitting CO2 somewhere in the world. It doesn't matter where the direct air capture facility is, right? Like planes, steel plants, boats, direct air capture is pulling CO2 from a dispersed atmosphere, right? So you don't, at least from what we can tell, you don't need to be located near where the customer is emitting it. But it does matter where you locate these for the technology. I think there's an initial thought of, oh, if you're pulling CO2 from the air, you can put it anywhere. And as you get more into the details of your technology, you realize the technology has preferences, right? It prefers certain temperatures. It prefers certain humidities. It needs certain energy sources. There are certain places that are the right places to put direct air capture. For us, you know, the U.S. Southeast is far and away the top option, both from a climate perspective, the availability of zero carbon energy, the incentives that are in place, and the availability of CO2 storage. But it varies by technology. So we do think you're going to see different, just like with, you know, between solar and wind and offshore wind and geothermal, those technologies go different places. I think the advantage DAC has, direct air capture has, is, you know, geothermal is located in a bunch of different places, but it has to plug into where people live, right? You have to have power lines that get it to where it's consumed. That's not true with direct air capture, right? We don't need to transport the CO2 to the airplane or to the large, you know, intermodal shipping vessel. We can pull it from the air and the atmosphere is doing that transport for us. We've covered a lot of ground. I I guess the question I have now is how does someone end up in this business? There's an emerging new space. So you've ended up in a very unusual and kind of cool technology space. 
How'd you end up here? I wouldn't say it was totally on purpose. I was working on carbon capture for a long time. So I was actually in the policy space before. So I was chief of staff at ClearPath, which works on energy innovation with Congress, the DOE. Uh, and so I'm far too familiar with all the different acronyms. Worked on some of the early iterations of 45Q back in 2018 before it was you know, upgraded and modified in 2022. So I have that policy that policy background. And through that, I was working with technology companies. And I think realized it just looked really fun. I was like, wow, I want to not just put the incentives and help put the incentives in place for capturing CO2 or building, you know, zero carbon infrastructure. As those incentives started to get in place, I wanted to go help actually build those projects. And so I knew the folks at Eight Rivers from that work at ClearPath. And so I joined the company in 2018, thinking I would be the policy person and do the policy, the communication, to engage with governments. Anyone who's been in a business, especially a small business, knows you end up wearing six different hats and the things that bring in revenue and build business value, they kind of rise to the top. And so I ended up a lot more in the project development and technology development than I think I thought I would back in 2018. But it's been a total blast. I mean, it's been an amazing place to work. And for anyone who's thinking about making the jump from something that isn't hard tech or isn't climate tech, it's a really, really fun space to be in. It's intellectually stimulating. You work with fantastic talent. And if you like to work on hard problems, uh, these problems are hard and they matter. And so that really makes it easy to go to work every day. Well, that, that, that's an amazing story. It sounds like a fun journey that you've had. As we close this episode, are there any other new and emerging techs that Eight Rivers is doing for those that may not know all the work you guys are doing that you want to cover real quick as we close up here? Yeah, that'd be great. So Eight Rivers, we have a portfolio, and this is something that makes us different. We do carbon capture on power uh, with the alum cycle. We do hydrogen, and we do direct air capture. So we're, we're a three or four trick pony with, with more ideas coming here as well. The thing we announced yesterday we're very excited about is we have this breakthrough technology for making hydrogen from natural gas called 8RH2 that can get higher efficiencies and higher rates of capture by using CO2 to help us reform that fuel into hydrogen. And we announced our first project, which is called Cormorant Clean Energy Project down in uh, Port Arthur, Texas, to produce ammonia from natural gas with full carbon capture. We're capturing all that CO2. And we actually send that ammonia all the way to South Korea, uh, where it can be used to help co-fire uh, in coal plants. So we can actually reduce the use of coal and you can actually burn ammonia instead of that coal. Which ammonia, NH3, it doesn't have any CO2. So when it burns, it doesn't emit any CO2. So we announced that for the first time yesterday. It's a great project. It's working with our major investor, SK Group, uh, who, who's been really a fantastic uh, partner for us. They're the second biggest conglomerate in Korea, uh, last I checked. So that's the thing we're all excited about around here in the office is we got to take that thing we've been working on for a long time and bring it into the public eye. Well, that's amazing. We hope to have more information about that uh, on Insider's Guide in the future. I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your journey and your company's journey with us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. No, Chris and Jeff, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for the questions. And I think we could have gone for a couple more hours if you let us. For audience, we hope you've enjoyed this recording as much as we did making it. What an exciting journey, direct air capture of the future, Eight Rivers, a lot of great content taken there. Uh, Adam, we appreciate your visit. For those of you in our audience who want to get a chance to meet us or be on the program, we are going to be headed to Distribute Tech International. We are an official media partner of Distribute Tech. Come on down to Orlando, see us on February 26th through 29th at Distribute Tech International. And that's all for today, folks. We'll see you again next time on the Insider's Guide to Energy podcast. Bye-bye for now.